here to discuss red with ryan and before we get too much further into red i'll hand over the mic so he can introduce himself further hello ryan dooley here to start off with red i guess this is a bit of a broad stroke but for a character that's only in three scenes of what i described to be an 18-hour movie what is it that you think that makes people think about him after all these years well for me red is a very remarkable character in the return because he sort of represents an archetype that David Lynch uses throughout all of his film and media. But usually when this particular character type is being used, they're a main character, not just somebody that exists on the edges of the story. And I think that like Red is there's just something that's left mysterious about this character and that in, especially in David Lynch projects, as a way of people kind of wanting more. Uh, I think you're right about the archetypes, but I think there's something about the, I'm trying to think the best way to describe it, but there's something very spontaneous in Balthazar Getty's performance on top of this uh, allure of like the unknowing about him. To start off with this first scene is that we see him at the end of part two, where Chromax is playing Shadow, and he does that like little gesture to Shelley. Before mentioning about Shelley, I think it's worth mentioning the proximity he is to Jean-Jacques Renault. And uh, did you have any thoughts about Red or even just Jean-Jacques Renault independently as a person? Well, it's almost certain that he was there doing business with Jacques Renault, which is why they're framed together, you know. And uh, that's a great observation because I remember having that thought at the time of watching it, but not making note of it necessarily. In the context of the greater story, you know that's what he's there doing because Jacques and that famous sweeping scene is talking about how the business is still very much active and will always be that way and that in itself i remember that that moment being kind of just like a i mean the, the return in a lot of ways it, it's not just about twin peaks and these characters it's it's about america and the decline that that society seems to be experiencing a hollowing out of of life and that was on display very much in the first twin peaks but that it very much is continued in this in the return um and so red is definitely there conducting some sort of bad business he, he has come to take the place that characters like hank would have taken if hank had still been around at this point and i'm not sure from the final dossier where hank is at at this point i don't remember on the topic of hank he ends up getting uh stabbed in prison three years after the events of season two but i think that if we're going to compare red to a character from the original series I think of him almost as a somewhat parallel to Leo Johnson, because I think with Leo, and this is kind of what ties into Shelley, is that Shelley fell for the allure of uh, of Leo on grounds that he had the sports car. And, that you know, it's that, it's that guy where he's kind of scummy, but there's some bizarre charm underneath. But I think what makes Red more dangerous is that he seems a lot more charming from the outset. Because I think with a lot of people, they'd look at Leo and just think, oh, this guy's kind of scummy or just don't be near him. But Red has a real charm to him. And I think the fact that he's part of something that's just as, if not more organized than what the Renaults had uh, 25 years prior, I think that's something that makes it very dangerous for Shelley, and I would even say to Twin Peaks at large. What do you make of the 
of the name Red. I, I, I had a few thoughts on this. Um, admittedly, I never really thought too much of like why he went with red, but of course, red is such like a central color in Twin Peaks. You know, whether you think of like the Black Lodge or the curtains when they go to Jacques' cabin in season one, where there's something very aggressive and somewhat uh, on the more, and in some cases, very malevolent in some cases. So I figured that there's some about like that darker aspect where he's a little more mysterious and just someone that you shouldn't really take too lightly. You know, I think that I think you're onto something there. Red being this sort of like, you know, color of, you know, evil or or darkness. Um, I I, I kind of thought that he's a little bit of a red herring in a way, and that he's this major sort of character that you would think we're going to find out more about Richard Horn and the criminal enterprise and that kind of thing, and instead. You know, we just never really see him. He just ends up being, you know, this character that we know is supplying Chinese designer drugs via the Canadian border trails. He's just sort of running things in town. We see a little bit of his private militia during that. Really, I think the most remarkable red scene I think there is is the one with Richard Horn. If I just say which scene makes red the most captivating, I think that's what I would say. I would absolutely agree. I think before we get anything about Richard or Red, I think there's some about the sound design in that scene where you hear like the subtle sound of sawing wood and then something about like this kind of whirring sound. And it just creates this like uneasiness where it's like they're both, I don't know if villains is the right word, but they're both like not good people in Twin Peaks. And they're just something about the, you know, low key contentious interaction that they have. But also I think one thing that's worth mentioning is that the big crux between Richard and Red is Sparkle. And actually before recording, I did look up and apparently Sparkle, it was actually a basically legal ecstasy. And I did find out that could also be snorted. Some that was discussed around 2010 and even then, and even still now, like uh, government and police don't really understand what it is. I took this as like almost like a Mark Frost type of approach in terms of like, society was decaying and he's kind of seen like the rise of like all these terrible things that would subsequently happen in the coming years uh you were mentioned earlier before about how red where he's kind of emblematic of a lot of the things of, of like a certain rot in like our civilization's core did you think that sparkle had anything to do with that that's a good question because it was always a little bit of a mystery what exactly they were peddling and i never looked deeply into it because you know there's so many different types of smack but yeah, red. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure I got much more of a thought on that. Admittedly, I should probably point out is that in the case of Twin Peaks, the return, the sparkle is clearly an illegal drug. This one, it's sort of like the it's legal, but it has bad repercussions type of ordeal. So I think that it's less to look at what we see in real life and more of what Mark Frost may or may not have taken at that time. And I know it might be a bit reductive saying it's Mark Frost, but there are just certain things that when I look at Twin Peaks, I can see certain things and I take it as like, this is a Mark Frost inspiration or this is a Lynch inspiration. But anyways, uh, that's that's what I have to say on uh, Sparkle in particular. But I guess to move on, though, is that Red, he does talk about to Richard Horn is that despite being only in Twin Peaks for a couple of weeks, that he does really like it. And uh, we were talking about him and Jean-Jacques Renault. Do you think that uh, Red, he's either from Canada or do you think he's just kind of going to and from Canada and Twin Peaks just happens to be the right spot for him? I think um, that he goes to and from Canada and Twin Peaks is the right spot for him. And I say this mainly because I'm like, I think about what Red sort of represents 
and where he might even come from. It seems like Twin Peaks and this area of the world and even the whole David Lynch universe, if you want to call it that, are populated by people that are characters that have the ability to access the supernatural. And, and like there's been, you know, we've called it out in other things like, you know, the editor in Fire Walk With Me with the pointy nose and the pointy nose can cut the film and edit the film, you know, like these so, you know, I, and the reason I bring up the editor is because we were just talking about that scene. Uh, and in that scene, I think we're visited by the supernatural, the lodge entities, or Red is utilizing some power over the world that he has acquired through the darkness. And, and cause, I mean, again, it's just that one scene where he flips the coin and while the coin is in the air. Richard pulls the coin out of his mouth. And then after that, the coin lands. I guess it, it's suggestive that there is that same darkness at work or that perhaps red it is another Bob corrupted individual. Again, these David Lynch people like Frank Booth or Mr. C or Hank I mean, they all have the black leather, you know, and, and you know, red. It's all that it's that same thing. But it, it speaks more to the mystique behind red, that he has this ability to manipulate reality, at least for Richard. I'm glad you brought up the dime because I feel like it's very uh, strongly symbolic for a lot of things. First is that the fact he's using a dime, which since it's uh, 10 cents here in America, where it could indicate the number of completion... But also, I think that another factor that's worth mentioning is that there's a difference between magic and illusion. You know, illusion is sort of like with David Blaine, where he can just, uh, you know, make something kind of look like it, it appears out of thin air, for lack of a better term. But in the case of Red, you know, the way that's like floating in the air and then it comes out of Richard's mouth. I think that there's something about magic and how there's uh, and how Red is used it for more nefarious purposes. And I guess to go through kind of like how I view the return as a broad stroke is that I'm one of the people where I subscribe to the idea that there's multiple realities. In my case, I think there's two or three. And I think because Red, because he he does tap into this magic, that he can tap into different realities. Yeah, I guess before I go too much further on that, did you have any thoughts in terms of uh, Red in any of this regard? Well, yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the scene from the original show with the grandmother and the little boy. And they say things can change just like that. And then you have the handful of the creamed corn and whatnot. It's that same type of editor magic that there is, you know, like it's almost like acknowledgement that this is a creation. Only those that have gone into that in-between place. Again, I'm, for context, I'm very much of the thought that Twin Peaks is sort of a show that knows it's a show but the people in it don't know it's a show, but the consciousness of the entire show itself seems to be aware it's a show and screams out like, hey, I'm a show. <laughs> Especially with the soap opera from the original, I forget what it was called. Um, oh, Invitation to Love. Thank you, yeah. That was constantly screaming, this is television, like at you and mirroring the show. Uh, and there was no invitation to love for the return. And I think that, that in itself actually is its own whole conversation. But but yeah, so um, on 
red kind of having this power. I think that if this is the real world, you know, and that is the television world and the lodge is the in-between, then I think that whoever, you know, there's definitely acknowledgement via these characters and the magic that it that it's a false world that they live in in some way. Like I, whenever anybody asks me, I, I want I talked to somebody last week before we move on. Talked to somebody last week on a on a movie set that was here in St. Helens. I think you might have seen the, the photo, and he said he hadn't seen the return. So he said, "What's it like?" And so I caught myself kind of coming up with a quick explanation for it. And I, what I told him was that it's as if somebody just left the television on after the show was done, but like, you know, and then you didn't check in on them for all this time and they are just kind of running on their own. Like, it doesn't feel like there's a point to bringing it back. There's no Laura Palmer mystery. In fact, David Lynch acknowledges it in the beginning of their return by just sucking her out of the story. <laughs> like she screams and it flutters away, you know? So it's like, why is the show here if there's no Laura Palmer? And you just kind of are going in these weird circles and following these people. And you're like, what is the point of all of this? And you slowly start to kind of, things come together in a sort of way, but it's it's all very artificial. Uh, and then there's the ending, which is very, art, it acknowledges how artificial it is kind of by having those two endings that overlap with, with the. So I think that Red... And, it, and these villain characters, they, they tend to, they live outside the story a little bit. Like Red might even be a lodge entity or a force of evil manifest. And that might be where he comes from. I mean, his name is Red. Like he could have just come from the Red. <laughs> like, I don't know. These people weren't born. They were imagined into this world. And like, we like to think that they were born because they look like people. But like, I think that they, they, first came into existence when David Lynch said action and they captured it to film. And once it became electricity, that's when Red was invented, the moment that he was captured on film. And he's, he's not the actor, you know. Do you understand kind of what I'm getting at? I'm being very meta. Yeah, I think that, because I know that yours uh, seems more of a meta approach, but when you mentioned the thing about the editor aspect, uh, one of the things I had is that there's this scene where Red asks Richard if he's ever watched The King and I, and uh, which funny because uh, you and me, like we actually waited months for this to make sure we both watched The King and I. Uh, admittedly, there's no real significance that I could find from The King and I and why Red brought it up. But the thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, Richard just looks at him and confused. And then there's like the slightest cut where it's like it's like almost like a half second, uh, not even a half second, like a fraction of a second too late where Red says, I said I like it. Like he says said in a past tense. So this is where I come from, where I think of the multiple realities where maybe Red's having a full conversation talking about it, but then Richard's just in another and is completely untapped, unlike Red. Did you have any thoughts about why he would say, I said I like it? Do you think it's a drug aspect or do you think there's something else at play? Well, that's a very good observation because David Lynch, as we've seen in The Missing Pieces, famously leaves out entire things that contextualize things like, you know, the mayor's speech and the pilot, you know, is just left out entirely. And so... It's very possible that there was an entire conversation written and filmed. And then when it was assembled for us in order to heighten the set, the idea of what it's of being lost kind of in that moment of being high and having fragmented time and reality that may have been cut in a way deliberately to leave us with that feeling like there 
uh, we just missed out on something important. And I hadn't quite thought of it that way until you framed it that way. And I, I guess I never quite noticed that question that way. But, you know, um, I watched The King and I. Great movie, by the way. Got to say, I really love uh, that. Oh, I forget his name now, the main actor there. I had to look up what other films he'd been in. But a uh, fantastic movie. And if somebody who watches this podcast has knows what their connection might be between Red and the King and I, I would love to, <laughs> if someone could shed some light. But uh, I couldn't find anything that specifically added context to that. I guess the only thing I really have to say about the King and I before shifting to, I guess, the less esoteric aspects of Red is that I know I was mentioned Mark Frostler, but I think this is another one where, in my mind, this feels like a Mark Frost reference because with David Lynch, you know, he loves The Wizard of Oz. He says that he can't go a day without thinking about it, or he loves Sunset Boulevard and characters like Norma Desmond. And uh, I believe it was actually Mark Frost in conversation with Mark Frost that said that David Lynch is not a cinephile. He just kind of has his own set films that he loves and he goes back to. So I, I think there's something, if, you know, with going that in mind, I think a lot of Red, I think is uh, all credit to Mark Frost. Not all, but I would say a lot of it goes to him. But to shift away from the esoteric aspects, this is more on the dynamic of uh, of Red and Richard. But I like uh, how he questions if he can trust Richard and he calls him kid to belittle him to kind of feel like he's like smaller and that he like Red is more insurmountable. Do you have anything about the general, I guess, surface level, if you will, interactions with Red and Richard in mind? What I would say of Red's role kind of ability, you know, his positioning versus Richard. I mean, Red is what I would call a master. In whatever he's doing he's and he's the master of his domain he will do and say what he wants because he is completely in control he's almost like an alternate kind of mr c you know he's like mr c doing some other kind of thing you know i that's why i say i made the bob connection is like i could very much see bob just being in pilot of a person like red uh, and just being like yeah because who's to say bob has to just be one person bob is if bob is the evil that men do he wouldn't just be contained to one thing they'd just be this evil out there that could manifest in whatever way via, you know, Laura Palmer herself may have gone down that road had she not been killed. She may have been corrupted truly and, and endlessly, which is suggested in Firewalk With Me. If we're going to go with like, because uh, we brought up Mr. C, um, one thing that I feel like that kind of fits that character, we're going to come back to the dime scene for a second. But when he says to Richard, heads I win, tails you lose. I feel like this kind of fits for your meta aspect and also kind of like my multiple reality aspect is that Red seems to know and is in control of a lot of things. And I think that uh, the fact that he can say that so confidently and then throw the dime up, like if Richard wasn't already kind of intimidated before, this absolutely does the trick. This kind of effectively ends the scene with uh, Red and Richard. Do you have any thoughts on either the service level or esoteric aspects of them? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, Red being sort of a master of, well, he won't be challenged by somebody who's in no position of, of anything. Richard is sort of vain and short-sighted to even think he has a place to, to challenge. It's like Fredo Corleone, you know, demanding respect, you know, just uh, like, it's like, no, like you, this is your role. This is your position, kid. Oh, you don't like me calling you kid? Kid? Well, well like... The moment that Richard tells him that he doesn't want him calling him kid, he, he laughs because you don't tell people what your what your red flag, what your uh, your triggers are. Why, like, why would you go like you're, you're going around advertising 
you know, making a point to tell people the things that make you upset can, can throw you off balance. And so if you're going around telling people the things that throw you off balance, if they're a powerful person who wants to assert that power over you, they will trigger you again and again, just for the fun of it, because you've surrendered to them that you, you thought you were being tough, you know, don't ever call me kid. Oh, oh, you don't like it, kid? Well, guess what, kid? You're going to get used to being called kid, kid. And so it was very much just a, a twisting, you know, it was red proving like, oh, I am powerful and there's nothing you can do about it. And then he got so bent out of shape that he killed the kid. <laughs> I guess actually on that topic of uh, the dynamic between them, one of the scenes I had written down, uh, well, I guess I'll go through like a certain thing, the idiosyncratic behavior of Red is that he makes his sudden martial arts moves. He does, strange enough, mention a liver problem. But I think the most important part is that he asks Richard if he's ever studied his hand. And I, at first I thought that maybe this could be a throwaway thing. Maybe it's just supposed to be just, uh, just a way to put him on edge. But I think of that scene with uh, Gordon Cole and Tammy, where, to be fair, this is more so about fingers, but... It's the, I'm very, very glad to see you, old friend. And he points out to the ring finger being a spiritual finger. I kind of wonder if there's something that Red is tapping into. I know that it's not the most concise, but it just seems like if Red is, he, he just seems too well-spoken and too understanding of the, the broader aspects of the world to just bring up the bring up the hand and not have it really mean anything to me. No, I think this is where we're getting into your missing aspects of the conversation fragmentation that seems to be happening in that scene where we're completely lacking something there's it's almost like there's a, a there's moments of the conversation missing or there's two conversations happening at once and neither of those things feel quite correct but there's definitely something wrong with reality uh in that moment and i that's why i, kinda, I keep going back to the idea that red is is either directly or, or is indirectly corrupted by something to do with the lodge forces, the dark energy of the woods that we are constantly introduced to in Twin Peaks. We're going to move on to the scene with um, when it's uh, Shelly, Bobby, or uh, talking to Becky at the double R. And this is like a very serious scene because Becky just shot at Steven's apartment. She could have gone in jail if Bobby wasn't part of the sheriff's station. But the thing is that it's like, once again, a very serious interaction that a family has to discuss. And all Red has to do is knock on a window and uh, Shelly just immediately is just like swept up by him. At first I thought that, oh, Shelly, maybe she's just like charmed by the allure of Red. But it was actually, I believe it was Jubal from Counter Esperanto, where he was tweeting his thoughts like months ago. And he mentioned about how for Shelly that there, that there, there might be more of a magical aspect. And with everything we talk about with Red, I wouldn't put it past him that that would be a factor. Did you have any thoughts about how Red, how he factored into this family interaction? I mean, that's a good question. And um, that observation is interesting to think about. But I think it would be more to do with Red sort of occupying this archetype that Shelley constantly has fallen for her whole life. I mean, if you think about the characters that throughout the story that have been the bad boys, there's always this idea that the woman in Twin Peaks who is wholesome has a soft spot, spot or once had a soft spot even for a bad boy. And if that person, if the person who was a wholesome Twin Peaks person who once had a soft first bad, uh, a bad boy, if that was Norma and Hank in the original, then that shifted, that's shifted to 
Shelly and Bobby a little bit in the return. Bobby used to be a bad boy when they were young. They had, a, you know, she had a son. She was in. Shelly is occupying a Twin Peaks archetype, an American archetype that will always exist. A girl who wants to be wholesome, but falls for all the wrong people, even when she's trying not to, even when she thinks she's doing right. So, like, I think that she's fulfilling a role in the story. And so, like, whether or not Red is has a magical casting over her or in some way, I think it's more that she's attracted to the darkness and that it's more about that. Uh, and it's so, for her, it's so, it's so much something that she enjoys that, you know, it's just, it occupies her. Even when, you know, she's talking about all the, as the darker aspects of her, her own life, you know, all of a sudden there's this uh somebody to the rescue in the us in the audience you know we feel for bobby at that time and we're like oh she's got the perfect guy right in front of but no no bobby wasn't the perfect guy like bobby was this caught up in all of this terrible stuff when they were younger for so context you know for like for us like we the audience look at bobby as like oh but he's better now you know but we don't know that for sure we just see what we see and you know and we're and we're it's framed against red who we know is evil so i i wouldn't say that i wouldn't necessarily agree that this that he's doing any direct magic on her other than just being what he is which is a powerful individual that is in command and she is attracted to that yeah, I'll say I, I'll, I'll take that. Um, but I think one thing that's worth mentioning, and this is admittedly where it ends with uh, Red and the Return, but later on in 2017, I think it was to promote the final dossier. Mark Frost was on Reddit on an AMA, and someone did ask about the status of Reddit after the events of the Return, and he said that there was a warrant out for Red's arrest. So that would mean that Shelley's relationship would just that would die off, like presumably. But I wrote down that as like, does it even matter like if there's a, a warrant out for him? Because I feel like if we're talking about like how he's so fat, you know, there's such a strong parallel with him and magic that I feel like he could get his way, uh, whether it's to charm his way or to escape from the authorities. Uh, do you have any stances on Red with a warrant out for him? Well, I mean, was there a warrant out for Cooper? You know, like, they were looking for him too. They never found him. It, uh, Yeah, I, I, that just leaves the door completely open I, I do remember reading that at some point you know that, that that's where it kind of leaves off officially with him is that but that's very open-ended and i'd say that um yeah the less we know about red maybe the better uh, maybe it's that's maybe it's best that way a little bit <laughs> i guess i'll finish my part on red is that i think that with him we were comparing a little bit whether it's like leo or hank but I think that uh, with the way that he presents himself, wow, he's, he, he can be very charming. He can seems like he can be a very personable guy. And also with the magic in mind is that I would honestly say that he is at the time of the return more dangerous than Leo or Hank or any of the Renaults because, you know, they end up like they end up uh, dead one way or another throughout the events of the original series or afterwards. But in terms of Red, it just seems like he just has an understanding of like the larger context of the world. So, and like you said, it's like, it's very ambiguous, but I kind of think that Red would escape and uh, he could just almost do like what Mr. C could, where he could just continue going on to just do his own thing. And just like drug trafficking happens to be the thing that he has a real footing in. Yeah. Um, I mean, like we were talking a little bit about color association earlier and like Red being kind of uh, almost like a, a nod to the color red and red room and, and, and the evil within. 
and I forgot to mention it before uh, when we were talking about the color, but there's this whole thing going on with, with the imagery and because uh, red does wear like a white shirt with a black leather coat and jeans, which is like, again, this is like a fifties uniform, you know, for a 1950s kind of look, a, a, a greaser kind of character. And David, again, these, I mentioned this before, but these characters show up a lot in David Lynch movies and projects. So we have, obviously we have Frank Booth, uh, you have Hank, when Hank's doing his crime stuff, he's got a leather coat, a black leather coat he wears. Interestingly enough, James, when we first in are introduced to him, is wearing a brown leather coat, which is like not fully black. He's like, this is a person who is, you know, could be, is, you know, like it's if you're following just the visual language, you're left questionable. But then as the show goes on, he's dressed less and less in his leathers, uh, unless he's on the motorcycle. And then um, Richard Horn is usually all in dark browns all throughout most of the show. Uh, until I think in his final scenes, I think he actually has, if, maybe it could be, I could be wrong, but I, got, I was trying to look at some of the uh, the colors on uh, in the final scenes there, and it looks like he's switched into more of a black overshirt. It's not a leather coat, but he's just, he goes from brown to black. And then Mr. C, obviously, who I modeled a little bit of my look after for the band stuff. And then I noticed this only today on doing a little bit of extra research ahead of our podcast here, but the very first scene that we see Jerry Horn in, he enters in his black leather duster. And as we know at the time, Jerry Horn was fully, almost fully corrupted by the evil of Bob uh, and was running one-eyed jacks with his brother, Ben, and exploiting people. And the person running one-eyed jacks is named Blackie. <laughs> so it's like there's this whole black being evil brown is going down and yellow seems to represent divinity uh and so like the rotting of yellow into black it's like you know a rotting of a banana you know into it becomes brown and then black and i say yellow is divinity because of the yellow orb that we see in the return uh and that comes right from you know occult mysticism if we're getting right down to it uh, where some of this imagery comes from yeah, those are really great observations in terms of color. I think they all uh, check out really well. I, and not to get too far off topic, but I completely agree with you on Jerry Horn, but I never thought about the black jacket that he was wearing. Like uh, of all of all the things I've ever thought about, the jacket was something that never crossed my mind, but it really checks out with definitely a scene from One-Eyed Jacks. And I would even say the season two premiere in terms of just how weirdly violent he can get in certain spots. Yeah, he was definitely corrupted during that time. And we see him years later as a kind of disassociated old man uh, <laughs> doing his thing. That's a whole separate podcast about Jerry. But yeah, no, I, that was the only one I picked up on this morning was, yeah, it's a black leather duster. Yeah, really great observations all around. I think that covers uh, everything on Red as well. Um, since we're winding down, did you have anything you want to plug in terms of social media or anything else? Uh, yeah, um, as you said before, my name is Ryan Dooley. I am RV Dooley on Instagram. I also have a band that I'm promoting called HMS. Uh, we are going into the studio to record our first single next month with a few musicians. We're going into Jackpot Records in Portland uh, with Zach Bloomstein on the console. Uh, we're going to have Maxwell Clark on the drums, guitar, and bass. And we're going to have Brad Carter on the sax. And I'll be doing all the other stuff. <laughs> if there's any left for me to do. 
So that's HMS. That's my that's my project. There's also um, some published music out there. Wisteria Lodge has an LP called Spoken Secrets that I contributed work towards. There's also a Wisteria Lodge EP with some different mixes. And there's a couple of music videos out there and a couple of singles. And Wisteria Lodge is much more in the realm of Twin Peaks than HMS is. But I still like to think HMS would be welcome at the Roadhouse if, if they were booking. <laughs> but we'll see. And that's what I've got going on. All right, sounds perfect. Um, all right, so everyone knows where to check out his music for once once it comes around. But yeah, I just want to thank you, Ryan, for coming on. Thank you. And uh, I'm not sure I mentioned. It, I think on that's a band named HMS on Instagram. Oh no, yeah, I'll I'll be sure to put a link in the notes for everyone, just so everyone can uh, keep up to speed on what you're doing. Awesome, much appreciated. Together.